will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Welcome to Leverage Addicts, the podcast for investors looking to maximize returns through leverage. Join host, seasoned mortgage professional and real estate enthusiast, Blandon Lerm, as we explore property investing strategies and learn how to navigate the market to build new wealth. Welcome everyone to another episode of Leverage Addict Podcast. I'm your host, Blandon, and today we have an esteemed guest who needs no introduction in the world of property investing. He is a chartered accountant, a seasoned property investor, and an author. You can see his book just right behind me, and a leading voice in the industry. So please join me welcoming Matthew Gilligan from Gilligan Row and Associates. Matt, thank you, Blandon. To have you here. Uh, my pleasure to be here and my pleasure to talk to you and your viewers. Thank you for inviting me along to have a chat. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. And before we actually dive into the content today, I just want to share a personal story. So you see, when we first started Mortgage HQ, Andrew and I, uh, we had this uh, book challenge that we had in the company. We had our book club and basically we had to you know, read a book every two to three weeks and then we would bring back like a summary. And one of the early books that we read was the GRA Property 101. And this was a very influential book for us because we saw the opportunity in properties, but also saw all the risk and all the uh, variables there were in properties. After reading that book, we realized there's this thing called the property school that Matt put out. And uh, it was there where I really um, got inspired to buy my second property. And at the time, like one of the one of the big lessons that Matt was teaching was like the foundational of of properties of what gives us capital gains and land banks that's developable. That was a huge part to uh, what he taught us. And I ended up buying this uh, South Auckland property with nine hundred square meters, and that's something that I went on to you know build a four bedroom on. But there was an important lesson in the mix as well, because if I could go back, I wish I paid Matt more money. I wish I paid him for more advice, because now if I reflect I back- I think you paid me any money. In, in, in your <laughs> <laughs> well, you came to the schools, so you paid us some money, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you got some benefit from it. Good on you. Why did you want to, why did you want to pay us more money? Well, it's it's important because what happens is like sometimes when we go to these schools and learn things and a lot of the time you you learn a little bit and you feel like you know a lot, but there's just so much more that you can learn with properties. And I think in the beginning, right, there's there's a difference between a great and a good decision, right? Like when you're at that current moment, it doesn't look that much different, a great decision and a good decision. But when you look five years down the track or like you reflect back in properties, five years is a long time and a good decision and a great decision is massively different. So I wish I paid more experts like Matt himself, just, hey man, like, what you what what do you reckon of this property that, you know, I'm I'm buying? If I could just pay him for an hour, I'm sure like my, my, direction would have changed a lot. So that was the thing that I wanted to share with you guys. So folks, um, don't hesitate to invest in expert advice when you're getting into the market. So thank you again, Matt, for joining us today and, and sharing your knowledge in the community. And wanted to just start off with this question for you, because I know there will be still an, a portion of our audience that don't know about your story. And if you don't mind sharing with us, what got you started in properties? How did it all start for you? Because now you've got this big practice, you're doing a lot in the in the in, in investment space, but where did it start? Mm. 
Uh, that's uh, you're getting me to dust off my memories here, Brendan. It's it's, um, it's a while ago. I'm, I'm 52 at the moment, so where are we? We're November 2023, and uh, like everybody, I started at the bottom of the heap. I, I went to uni, um, and I, I remember I left uni and. I got a job offer from PwC at the time. Uh, they were Cooper's and Library back then, and they offered me um, eighteen grand. And that, and at the time, uh, I was running my accounting practice at university. I had six staff, and I was earning one hundred and twenty thousand from self-employment. But I'd been wow. brainwashed by um, school and university, and my dad. His sincere advice: he was a chartered accountant. His advice was. Um, leave school, get a job with a big firm and uh, buy a house, pay it off and you'll be wealthy. And you need the big firms to tell you, you know, that's the, that's the crescendo of my, my charter cutting industry. So that's where I was heading. And I, so I scratched my head. I thought, God, you know, um, I'm earning 120. Um, I've got six staff and so I'm going to take a pay cut of 100 grand and in three years' time, they might teach me some stuff, but I'm not sure that they will close the gap on the income because my income is growing. May, I, may I ask, like, how did you build that business? Like, this was like during uni, you're already trying to do your own thing. Yeah, uh, good question. I've actually, um, uh, I've always found that um, uh, my lateral brain attracts clients. So people will come in to talk about their tax return, and, and that frankly bores me. And bored me back then. I don't, I don't do tax returns. I've, I've, we've got a crew of um, 110 on staff now, so they they do the tax. But I, I've never been interested in tax returns. I've always been interested in making money, designing tax and legal structures, and that element has made our practice um, attractive and always brought clients to us. So at uni, um, I managed to attract clients quite quickly. I actually door knocked. I, I went door knocking in Pukekohe because I lived on my parents' farm as a student. I door knocked all the businesses and said, hey, um, this business you've got is not going to make you wealthy. Um, why don't you buy some houses? And um, offered to do monthly accounts so that we could improve their profitability. And, you know, that that dynamic is, is not in all accountants and attracts not, clients. Not, but, not in many 20-something-year-old either. <laughs> yeah. Well, for you to go out and door knock. Yeah. yeah. So yes. that's, that's, that's the salesman in me. And... Um, and also, I enjoyed talking to people. So anyway, I got some, I got plenty of business, and the business was going well. And I said to PwC, "Hey, um, I've got all these clients. What do I do with those?" And they said, "Oh, just just give us those. We'll take those over." And uh, and I thought, and I thought, um, actually, maybe maybe my dad's and maybe my dad's not right with his advice, and maybe um, I'll have a crack at this on my own. So probably the biggest decision I ever made was to back myself, stay self-employed, um, and and I did it a bit differently because I thought, well, my dad's right. I, I do need to be taught um, the principles of running businesses and, and all the stuff that you would learn in a big firm. So instead of uh, working for them and taking a 100 grand uh, pay drop, I hired um, them. So I went to who I considered to be the top of the town. Um, on the legal side and the tax side, I hired good lawyers, Good chartered accountants, public practice, paid them four hundred bucks an hour, which, what thirty years ago is a lot of money. Um, more, some of them five hundred an hour, and that's how I, I trained myself by paying them to train me. And wow. um, 
yeah, so it was a big decision to take the path less, less trod, pay someone to train me to be better in my business, and, and that's how I grew, grew a bigger business. But to, to your question, um, how did I get into property? Once I had cash flow, like everybody, um, I I was interested in investment and housing, and I was sort of flavour of the month with property promoters and, and mentoring people because I was very strong in tax and legal structures. So I'd get invited to go and talk at their workshops, and I was terrified as a public speaker, but I managed managed to learn to do it as a young fella. And um, and from that, I got exposed to some of the old school investors. And it's all the same stuff, right? Um, so in the rich mastery days, that's a dirty word because I know that um, they're not loved by the banking sector. But they were the same as Dolph DeRoos, Brad Sugars. Um, you know, they, they, they pinched all their information off those guys. And subsequent generations of what they taught went through into Sean Woods, probably tutors, and through into Steve Goody now, who's the, the latest go-to mentor, and he's very good. Um, but it's the same stuff. It's it's um, buy, add value, and either sell it or keep it. And mm. there's a thousand permutations of how to make money out of that. But around that, you need the right tax and legal structures. So I sat in the room and I thought, I thought, gee, I'm the I'm the smartest guy in the room here because I'm the I'm the graduate chartered accountant, and I thought I was really smart. But um, what really um, dawned on me very quickly. Mm-hmm. was I might be the smartest guy in the room, but I'm also the poorest guy in the room. <laughs> and all of these investors around me have a lot of money, and a lot of them are not necessarily in sophisticated, high-earning um, positions, but they're actually very wealthy. So I paid attention and thought, oh, that's that's ready to be. So um, you know, I had the privilege of being in the workshops as, in a, as a speaker, but I listened to the peers and thought, God, that's smart. I need to do that. And, and uh, so I ended up, you know, buying modest houses and areas that um, many many investors would consider to be atrocious, like um, you know, Otara back in the day and yep. South Auckland. The the narrative was that if you bought down there, it, it was financial suicide because you couldn't get paid. Yeah. No growth apparently in Otara. I mean, houses in Otara were um, thirty grand. Yeah. And then they went to 60, and then they went to 120. What a ripoff. You know, I sold a house in Otara um, last year for 1.2. Yeah, jeez. Uh, you know, horrible house in a terrible area, but as a land bank, and it was terrace housing and apartment building zone with good access and services. And so the investor bought it because they're going to build a bunch of houses for social housing. So I can't be too bad starting in Manurewa then. Now, now that you tell me you started in Otara, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a snob when it comes to um, banking money, so I, I never have been. And uh, there's a lot of myths. I, I remember getting absolutely punished on Interest.co.nz. I wrote an article. I really don't like that economist Shima Bielikin. Um He's the guy that. Um, not that long ago, maybe maybe five years ago, he published an he published an article saying that um, housing was a terrible investment, and you shouldn't even own your family home. You, you know, you should just pull your money in the share market. and And so I wrote an article. You'll see it on interest.co.nz and said, "Well, this is bullshit." Um, he doesn't understand leverage. 
You know, mm. he assumes that every house gets an average rent and an average operating expenditure, and if you divide that into the average value of a house, that's a terrible return. Well, it just shows how ignorant he is about property because mm. no investor buys an average house. They yep. buy a niche house in a, in, a, in a targeted suburb, and they think about the fundamentals of what they're doing. So, for example, they buy a, a property with multiple income streams. Mm. And they buy that on big land in an area with the right zoning. So they get above average income. They get above average capital growth mm. through the land bank of the land. And you add the two together, there's nothing average about that. Mm. And, and so you add the capital growth to the cash flow. It's it, it, over 10 years, it far, ex- far exceeds the return of shares because you're getting 80% leverage Back in my day, now yeah. 60, 50, 65. Still not bad. Yeah. So if you're getting growth on on um, the bank money plus your money, capital growth, it's non-taxable, mm. and you're getting above average yield because you're targeting multiple income stream properties, for example, you add those two returns together, it far exceeds the return of um, of unleveraged shares. Yeah. And then and then everybody says, oh, well, you can leverage shares. And I say, you can, but everyone's too timid to because when the market tanks, you get margin called and, and that stuff's dangerous to play with. Uh, so anyway, that that um, article which I wrote saying actually ATAR is a great place to invest, I got punished. All of the all of the anti-property brigade came in and they're saying, oh, I really dislike this person. You know, their narrative is um, exploitive to um, the tenants and he's the problem with New Zealand because he's pushing housing up. It's like, oh, what? Man. What? <laughs> I don't push anything. I just identify yield, and there's a bigger yeah, yield yeah. there over here, and I like leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and so it's an inter- interesting because I, I and I was saying that um, Shemaville Ekin was wrong, didn't understand housing, uh, and you know I was right. Um, but in that thread, you read the comments; they were, they were um, punishing me, saying you don't know anything about property. Um, well, actually, I should write books on it. And I own lots of it. <laughs> but nevertheless, they don't know me. You don't know anything about property and you, you can't get a return out of Otara because um, your, your tenants never pay you rent and you're forever <laughs> maintenance and turning them over. Okay, well, you don't know anything about managing tenants in Otara. I give all my houses to social housing. Yes. And yeah, the tenants punish my houses, but I'm still getting full rent because that's what my contracts say. And all of the R&M goes back to the government. So I have the lowest repairs and maintenance bills of anybody because I have none because the government paid them all under my leases pretty much. Um, and uh, I get 100% occupancy. Mm. Um, and I, of course, get interest deductibility because it's social housing. Uh, that was a bonus. I was doing it before those rules came in. So, that, you know, um, how did I get started? I got exposed to the to the promoters of the, of the uh, mentoring products, I guess, and that propelled yeah. me in, and um, and I found that you know you're not loved as a landlord. You're you're despised. You're evil. You're exploitive. You're the cause of all of the problems in New Zealand. All this yeah. narrative that the Labor government's run for the last six years. <laughs> so you learn to keep your head down yeah. and not talk about it um, because you're not celebrated in this country. So you just get on mm. with your business, you know. And I'm. I'm a property guy. I keep my head down. I don't mind talking to you, Blandon. You're same page. <laughs> but at the same time, I would think uh, they always say uh, there is no publicity that's bad, right? 
So even though you are creating this, um, you know, party of people like, hey, we don't like properties. I am, I'm so sure that at the same time you were starting to create your fan base of like, yeah, like this is this is right. Yeah, but like, you're a millennial. The- you love people chucking rocks at you. I'm, I'm a boomer, so or actually I'm Gen X, but <laughs> it hurts when the media are after you. You know, it's it's, it's like, oh shit, yeah. I don't like this. Um, and I, I'd have the New Zealand Herald turning up to my workshops and. Um, and they would do an article and say, oh, there's a 1,000 people in the room and they're, they're taking notes and writing down everything he's saying. And he's saying things like, you make more money out of property than shares because you can leverage. And they're sort of casting it in negative light, like um, yeah. leading people into high risk. Um, and then they're talking about the donuts and the, and the muffins that people are stuffing in their faces as they're talking about they might buy another house next year, like it's an evil thing to do. Yeah. And I got a double-page spread in the in the Herald, and and I read it. Thought, oh, this one hates me. And then my mates are ringing me, saying, "Oh, you, you know, she's she's bagging you." But actually, you just come across as somebody that's highly competent. That people are listening to, yeah. and she's a poor journalist with with no expertise or money. So Surely, have you have you tracked back like when the article released and how many clients you were bringing on board? Like there must be a correlation. I'm so sure that there'll be like a, a positive correlation. Yeah, but I still don't like negative press. You know, it's yeah, of course, speaking yeah. disparagingly of you, but 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 you know, you just got to harden up and take it, <laughs> which mm. is what I did. Yeah. yeah. Now that's that's a uh, really appreciate you sharing that, and I guess if we come back to the present, right, we. Just had our recent elections, you know, like interest rate, like no one thought that it would go up to like 7%. And uh, we've got high inflation rate. We've got, you know, wars going on. This market is just really weird, right? Well, I, I thought I, they'd pick up 7%. And, and I thought they peaked when they were down in the mid too. So um, I carry a lot of leverage. I've got about 20 something million of debt, maybe 24. And I fixed all of it at two average of two point nine for so five to seven years. And I texted my, I emailed my database and said, uh, I think that there's no need to to fix short. You, it might go down half a percent, but it could go up five percent. That's mm. what I said. In, in 20 when years. I went to property school, this is ac- exactly what Matt taught us. You know, he said uh, people with money will fix long term. It's it's not about getting the lowest, the absolute lowest cost of interest. It's about surviving volatility in the market. That's what I said to you in property school. Because when rates spike, uh, if, if you're exposed on your whole portfolio to a spike in rates, that's what causes you to have to sell at precisely the worst time in the market. Mm. And then you give away all of the hard work that you've done, possibly go broke if you're on the wrong end of it, but if you've made 20 30% buying the asset, developing the asset, and then made another 20 30% through capital growth, and then have to sell when the market's 40% down because you're distressed, then you're missing the point. The point is you want to get rich through the capital growth. The cash flow is what you have to survive. And if you're trying to gain the cash flow to get the absolute nth degree bottom rates, yeah. you're missing the big picture. The big picture is you go broke in the down market. So, you know, I, I, had, I had everything fixed five to seven years and I'm pleased I did. I'm still enjoying, you know, what is a 5% differential on 20-something million. It's a million bucks a year. Yeah. We still reference that in our, uh, in, with our clients, with our advisors. We, we always say, Matt said, it's all about riding out the wave. 
Yeah. He said that in property school. And it's in that book behind you. Yeah, and it's yeah. common sense. Yeah. No, that's and, and you know, in the everybody's an expert, especially when the property markets are hot. A um, bunch of those people go broke or wither and disappear in the down, down cycle because they just don't have the client bases and the horsepower to keep going. Um, so mm. credit to you because you're still here and you're still doing it. Um, and people like you and my, and and like myself that are the perennial investors, I call them, that in the down market, we're buying stuff. In the up market, we're buying stuff and we just do different things. Mm. So in a down market, you are buying distressed assets at deep discounts and you're you're banking on the long-term recovery. In a hot up market, you're trading because you don't want to tank up on debt at the peak of the market mm. uh, because the asset can fall in value. So actually all the investments in the down market and you might be setting up your developments or your your land banks for, for extracting the value out of them, getting consents and so forth, and then you pull a trigger on the on the construction when the market's showing the signs of, of being um, you know of ripening and, yep. um, so and what, I, what, yeah, I think that'll what, be I don't think that'll be 2024 so much. Everyone's very positive about 2024. Uh, mm. I think 2024 is going to be another flattish year. Tony Alexander's saying it's going to do 15%. Maybe maybe we get 5-10% next year, which is more about recovery than actual growth because we went down 20-plus in Auckland. Um, so we, we might see a bounce and a, a recovery of, of from the crisis of confidence that's been out mm. there. But, you know, property is driven by interest rates. You can't deny it. And with rates up in the sevens and eights, the, the, it's not until incomes have grown mm-hmm. that allow average people to swallow that as part of their ordinary life. In other words, the debt that they took on peak market or whenever they bought their properties, until their incomes have grown through income growth, to make that affordable, you're not going to see growth in the market because the whole housing market is based on affordability. Um, I did I did hear someone say in a, in a blog or, a, or a, a thread on Facebook or wherever I read it, somebody said that in some respects the property market is about speculation on, on interest rates and where they're going to go. And there's a, there's a degree of truth in that because – you know, Adrian Oil, um, in my opinion, the worst reserve bank governor we've ever had should be shot. Oversteers the economy, looks at everything but inflation and what he should have his eye on. He has oversteered the economy, grossly overinflated the property market through flooding liquidity when we mm. didn't need it in New Zealand. He should have been a bit slower and a bit more circumspect. So he inflated property values up, encouraged all the investors to pile in and the homeowners to pile in on two point something percent interest rates with high LVRs and then pulled the rug out from under them and crashed the market, pushing interest rates back to seven when he realised that the inflation he'd caused and house price inflation was worsening the wealth gap and triggering you know, the, the terrible thing which inflation is to a country. So that, that has really harmed New Zealand and it's, it's harmed 2024 because we've still got to unwind inflation and it's not until you see inflation in control that you'll see meaningful reductions of interest rates and I don't think inflation is in control yet um, so I, I just think we, you know, we're waiting for interest rates to come back maybe 2025 yeah. 
There was an interesting sort of extract that I got from what you shared right now. And I'm sure some of the audience will need to rewind back because there were so many gold nuggets. And I think one of the ones that you just shared was to do with uh, tracking the income growth. Because, you know, if you're just tracking the interest rate, it might just be a short-term, uh, I guess, indicator. But if you're tracking the income growth of, of households, yes. that, that could potentially give us a really good indicator on where the market is going to recover yeah. fully. That's right, because your debt is fixed. Mm-hmm. If you're paying your interest, your debt is fixed. So you've got a fixed cost and a fixed amount of debt, presumably 60% of your investor up to 90 if you're, you know, if you're a homeowner. But if your income doubles over five years, and it should, um, if, you, if you're young and, and, and working your way through stuff, um, mm. even if it goes up 50%, what was um, hard for you is now much easier. Mm. And because your costs are fixed. Um, and so the increase in interest rates is, is being swallowed by the increase in income. And of course, for investors, your cost is fixed, but your rents are going up, um, especially when you have a government that creates distortionary um, mechanisms like interest on deductions, which scare investors out of the market, and the uh, inability to terminate tenancies, um, you know, scared investors out of the market. So that would reduce supply, which spike rents. And all this stuff is any investor or anybody with half a brain that's involved in business could have advised um, Grant Robertson or uh, the Minister of Finance at the time or um, Adrian Orr, you're going to cause inflation. You're going to cause house price inflation. You're going to scare investors out of the market. Um, Your practices are well-intentioned but distortionary. So – for me, it was it was pretty obvious in all the investors around me. So we've been investing around the assumption that the rules will be reversed. So we've been buying second-hand houses in the down market on the assumption that we either put them into social housing and get the deductibility, or we'll build new builds to get new builds, or they'll they'll rip the rules out because the rules were envy-based taxes. They didn't make sense. They're distortionary, so they'll, they'll go. So we've bought a lot of second-hand houses during the down market from people getting out of them. Mm, definitely. Yeah, we definitely no, see like a massive so I think I went off on a tangent. What was your question? No, I, I think you did because I guess where we were trying to head with this initial question is what are your perspective on the current market? You know, people who are playing the game right now and and you've answered it as look, interest rate when it's low, you want to maybe trading, right? Trading. And we talk about that as well as, you know, I think in the last couple of years in 2021, I always try to persuade my clients not to max out because the test rate was so low. And if you max out right now, like if interest rate went up, it's it's really hard to move and refinance. And um and I think, yeah, like in the current market, what you've what you sort of covered uh is to summarize what I'm hearing is interest rate is high, then you know it's a good chance where you can pick up distressed assets. And that's potentially like a like this is what you need yeah, to do. Yeah, and if you take a one-year view of those assets, um, they're, they're a problem to you because they're bleeding you. And if you ask a, a, a finance person who tend to be 12 months out um, and not think long-term, if you ask a finance person, they'll say, oh, this is bad for your cash, right? it's bleeding you. But if you ask a property guy um, like myself, I'd say, well, what can you do with that asset? Oh, you can knock that house down and put um, – 12 houses on it because you're investing in, say, Rotorua, 
where many density residential standards are coming in and in Rotorua that's plan change nine and that's operative in March 2024. And so you've got what happened in Auckland where yeah. Auckland Unitary Plan came in and you got an explosion of, of, of the value of assets that were developable because suddenly supply-starved environment got, got um, density through rule changes. Well, okay, maybe you're in Rotorua same deal, you're investing on plan change nine, the property guy says, well, we're not investing for the cash flow this week, we're investing for the rezone that's coming and that's why we're there. We're investing because we're trying to find multiple income stream properties to hold the cash flow mm-hmm. and in 10 years' time, what's the value of that property? It's at least 70% more based on past performance, no guarantee of future performance, but likely, highly likely we'll see 70% in the next 10 years, that's why we're there. So the analysis of what's it doing to your cash flow this week is dumb. It's, yeah. it's not so, what it's about. So essentially what you're saying is, you know, Rotorua is, you know, going through that phase where the government or the or the council there is going to push the button and that button basically allows you to build more houses and then because of that, all the value of these houses will go up potentially. Yeah. Yeah, well, you, you, you MDRS medium density residential standards is essentially the Auckland Unitary Plan being spread across the main centres of the country and the areas uh, that are, have been identified as severely supply starved. And that includes Wongaray, Auckland's getting the rezone too, upzoning the Unitary Plan, uh, Hamilton, Tauranga, Rotorua, Wellington, Christchurch, and uh, Queenstown Lakes District Council. Those those areas are getting MDRS. However, MDRS is being rejected by many of the councils and pushed back on because they were too aggressive and there wasn't enough consultation, which was something that you know the Labor government did. They had well-intentioned ideas, but they didn't necessarily consult. Mm. And so the town planners all said, this is egregious what you're doing. We don't want this in our community. We haven't consulted our community property. So a lot of the, like Christchurch, for example, is actually implemented MDRS with a, a rule that says um, if your house has windows, it has to go to resource consent. So it's almost a joke. It's like, yes, we've done what the government said, but there's a rule that says if you've got windows with light coming through, you have to go to full consent and the old rules apply. It's, it's sort of equivalent to that. Mm. So they've actually almost given the middle finger to the government because they haven't, they haven't done what they were commanded to do. They did it in a Clayton's way. So big pushback from some of the councils. But having said that, you, you and you've got to look area by area, if you go to Rotorua at the moment, um, Plan Change 9, which is MDRS for their local district plan, which operates next year, is a lot more permissive than it is now. So if you, you know, so I, I've been targeting that area. Um, and it's not to say that, that's the only area to target. You can target anywhere where they're bringing in the new zoning because the, the rezone increases land value for houses that, that can be developed. If you guys need an expansion on this, you definitely need to check out the GRA. Uh, you got go, you guys have the property development school now. I really wanted to go, honestly. Yeah, well, you should just go. You know? <laughs> just just uh, like it's it's really hard. Like with you the, can, you can the attend kids and, and you everything. Can pay what you paid last time if you want to. Just send me an email. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I really, yeah. I need to, I need to put aside some time, but 
for the audience out there, definitely. Like, you know, I think um, there will be so much value you get out of it. Actually, um, the single biggest bit of advice I'd give to uh, people teetering on whether properties for, for you or not, just to answer this question, what's the value of these properties in 10 years? And, you be, and so historically, 87, 97, 2007, 2017, those were the former peak values mm. and probably double in value every 10 years over those 10-year cycles. So there's been this 10-year cycle going on. 2027 is our next peak based on mm. the 10-year the cycles, but this 10-year period has been disrupted by a double boom because we had market intervention from central government flooding liquidity, flooding cheap debt through Adrian Orr's um, oversteering of the economy and the government interfering. Mm. And, and so you get a double boom, what you get is a double bust because normally you have a boom, bust, recovery, growth, and that's 10 years. And the growth happens all at the end. You know, it's three years at the end. The downturn's a long time. Everybody forgets how long the downturn is. It's like five years. And the bust is sort of two to, two to three years. So I, I still consider we're at the back end of the bust, and it's a double bust. I've never seen house prices in Auckland fall 20%. That's a bubble. Yeah. And it's a government-created bubble through oversteering. Um, and it's, it's going to be a long, hard grind to come out of that because mm. we still don't have inflation in control. And, you know, people love me to come on and be positive about property, and I'll do that when the yeah. fundamentals of property are positive. But at the moment, I sort of look at it as we're over the worst of it. And yeah. Yeah, But in the worst of it is the most opportunity because mm. that's when you get real bargains, distress, and there's still distress everywhere. And, yeah. and so while I'm saying the property market is still distressed and we, there is positivity returning, we're seeing investors coming through GRA, which we haven't seen for a year or two, so suddenly there's activity. You know, it's it's we're in recovery. That's where yeah. we're in. You know. So, like, let's go back to maybe a client situation, for example, because, yeah. you know, there is a lot going on in the market. But a lot of the listeners out there are sort of buying their first one or their second or third one. You know, they're sort of beginning yeah. of their investment journey. What sort of uh, philosophy would you sort of advise these clients to stick with? Um, uh, you know, I've got in, one. I've got one nugget for you here. Go ahead. So you and, and you've heard this probably is cool, but um, you you get solvent through um, trading property. You get rich through capital growth. By example, you buy a house for a million dollars. Mm -hmm. made up number and and that is the house that you bought renovated and revalued it's now worth 1.25 million you made 250 grand if you sell that house you pay an agent two three percent plus gst mm -hmm. you pay gst you pay income tax you turn the two hundred fifty thousand dollar gain into one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Mm. the person that bought the house off you for 1.25 probably lived in it um, 10 years later, they sell that house for $2 million. They make 750000 tax-free because we don't have capital gains tax in New Zealand. So the, the investor that did all the work and made the house pretty, they got one hundred and twenty-five after tax. They spent that living. So in 10 years' time, they got nothing because they bought a new Audi or, or paid, their, you know, paid their living costs. But the person that bought the house and kept it uh, actually got rich. Cash flow makes you solvent. Capital growth makes you rich. 
So if you look at that and think, oh, tax-free, no agents fees, no GST, do a lot less and get a lot more, where's the smart money? The smart money's holding. But if you take your last deposit and put it on a buy and hold and you can't do anything more, that might not be smart. Because what you're doing is you're capping the amount of wealth you can make mm. because you've just, you've just got a fixed amount of property and you have to wait for the market to go up or your income to go up so you can save another deposit. So you can never expand your, your future wealth exponentially because you've run into a dead end. You can't get any more wealth uh, because you, you, you've run out of, of leverage. So if instead you say, I'm going to take that last bit of deposit I've got for a house and buy, renovate, sell, buy, develop, sell, buy, build, sell, or whatever it is, um, and make that 250 grand, you've now got 125 grand after you pay agents, GST, and tax. You do that three times, that's a deposit that you manufacture for your next buy and hold. Mm. The cash flow keeps you solvent. The banks look at it as servicing income, so they'll add that to your day job eventually. It might take two or three years. So it helps your servicing. It manufactures the deposit for the next buy and hold, and it's that buy and hold that makes you rich over time. Cash flow makes you solvent. Mm-hmm. Capital growth makes you rich. That's so that's good. So good not you. just think about that one hold, but really think about, okay, well, actually, how do you recycle that deposit out if you were to go in with this investment? Yeah. And if you could recycle and, and get more capital, then it, it makes sense to keep building up that whole portfolio. It does. And it's worth saying at this point that there are stages of life. And so if you're a late stage, 60, 70, you're not about capital growth. You're about maximizing cash flow. You're about rolling off your capital growth properties into cash flow generating properties because late stage in life, you need cash flow and you don't want to take too much risk. But if you're a young person or midlife person uh, that can withstand a shock and recover, then you can take a bit more risk and you can divert more income into uh, propping up negative cash flow assets like land banks mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then mine them at the appropriate time when the market's going up. You build you build on them or you sell them. Um, so you've got, to, you've got to overlay stages of life and um, everybody should take advice on this stuff because it's individual to the household. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, but yeah, stages of life. Um, pick your strategy that's appropriate for your household. If, you've, if you're a very high income household, because you're an investor, uh, so you're you're a you're a you know professional person, or you, you just paid a lot of money. Um, you don't need cash flow; you've already got it. So focus mm-hmm. on developing those capital growth assets, developed whole those sorts of strategies. Whereas if your household is um, low income, but you've got equity, then you're really going to have to focus on trading and cash flow strategies. So that's what I mean about it's situational based on your household, your stage of life. And you take the strategies and you apply them to your circumstances you're in. Because one of the things that I would say people are most scared of right now is to do with the interest rate, right? Yeah. You did mention, okay, if you are working in a job, um, you could potentially, you know what, take a bit more risk on the cash flow side because you don't really need to funnel your cash anywhere else. Like how should people think about, you know, with the current interest rate being so high, people are scared of the negative cash flow. How do you advise on that or, or, or get them to, to sort of look punch, at this? Punch within your weight. Sorry? Punch within your weight. Yeah. Don't, don't push too hard, you, you know. I, I call it growing broke. 
everybody <laughs> can make a billion dollars. Just buy a billion dollars worth of property in 10 years, it's worth two billion. You made a billion. Yeah. But on week one, you went broke because you couldn't handle the cash flow. Yeah. Um, and so it's about punching within your weight class. And so the mm. banks will make you do that. The prudential lending controls in New Zealand are good. They'll say 60% LVRs, they have servicing testing, um, and that knocks you out of the out of the game pretty early. That's why yeah. we don't need a central government telling us what to do, because the bank's really doing it. That's why when interest rates shot to seven and the market melted down, you didn't see systemic mortgage failure in New Zealand. It's not because we had a nanny state government telling us how to behave and think, which is what was going on. <laughs> it's because the private sector didn't want to lose money and set prudential lending controls at sensible levels and debt servicing testing at sensible levels. And they said, for example, if you're going to borrow a million dollars, you need to be able to service interest at 9%, even though we lend it to you at 5 So when interest rates went to 9 you didn't go broke. That's prudential lending. That's why New Zealand didn't have so many mortgage sales, because the private sector is smart. So the yeah. triple CFA stuff is bullshit. That, that, that needs to go. It, it's not required. Yeah, and we don't need. We, you know, you need principles of good banking, which the Reserve Bank's always done. They don't need to be told what to do. You know, yeah. really, we I'm do have an episode um, on our YouTube that um, I completely forgotten the guy's name, but he's from National, and he came on to tell us like the triple CFA was a unintended consequence. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't even for the banking sector; it was to target yeah. the the high high interest loans, but. It was to it was to stop predating upon poor people with payday loans, mm. but because the politicians running the stuff were so um, naive and uh, completely unversed with business, uh, you know they just they just were meddling in things that they shouldn't have been meddling in, caused all sorts of problems in the economy, and of course people with money took advantage of that. Like we were out buying property of people because they couldn't afford them and. Mm. You know, am I a predator? Well, every investor, when they see opportunity, takes it. Um, who actually caused the problem and who caused the opportunity? It's actually the government. So yeah. who's the problem? <laughs> the people with money yeah. or the people making these people distressed and vulnerable by encouraging them into assets at 2%, pulling the rug out from under them and putting them on 7 to 8% to fix the inflation problem they created that everybody could see coming except them. I've said yep. that once or twice already, but I am furious <laughs> about this. Well, like it's just oversteering the economy, right? It's bad. Yeah. It is, it is a, I guess, economy of, you know, mostly capitalism and some socialism. So, um, yeah, like, I mean, we, we have to accept some I, of these I think facts. it was the other way around for the last six years. It was, <laughs> yeah, but it didn't work out for those. It didn't work out for the, I guess, the less less fortunate people, I would say. Um, but yeah, look, that's another. I, I, feel, I feel very sorry, sorry for them. Um, let's so let's go back to new investors because I think that's that's our key message here. Um, why why would you get into property when interest rates are high? And the answer is because because other people are reluctant to, so you can get better deals. And if you answer if you answer the question, what's it worth in ten years? And you use a number like seven percent growth, um, mm -hmm. gross you know gross dollars. And unadjusted for inflation, you buy something for a million bucks, it's worth 1.7. And historically, it would go to two, but let's just be a bit more conservative and say so it's 1.7. Why would it do that? It would do that because um, construction inflation is running at 3 4%, and general inflation is running above that. 
And so incomes are coming up. Cost of, of producing the same asset and replacing it is coming up. So that bakes into the system guaranteed growth. And the only thing that stops that is affordability. And that's a good argument to say, well, we won't get growth because housing is severely unaffordable. But incomes are growing. So what was really expensive becomes affordable and normalised over 10 years. So mm. why would you buy something today? Because in 10 years' time, it'll be affordable and there'll be room for more growth. And all of that growth into your buy-to-hold investing in your family home, if it's just your first family, first home, all of that's yours and it's tax-free. You've just mm. got to pay the, pay the debt for 10 years, manage the asset for 10 years. And, and what's better than getting a house and getting free money off it that you don't have to work for? Getting two houses. And what's better than getting two houses? Getting 10 houses. You know, you yeah, buy. It's the 10. most common goal. You know, everyone yeah, comes yeah. in, I want 10 houses in 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And so you get 10 houses, sell five in 10 years, you're freehold yeah. another five, go to Bali and surf. It's that's actually, good. That's it's addictive stuff, right? It's addictive stuff. Um, <laughs> because once you actually get there and you start to tick some boxes, um, your goals start to change, so you you um, you want more, <laughs> um, and and for me it becomes about the next generation setting your kids up because uh, I I grew up poor mm. and and fought for everything I've got, um, and so I want I want to pass down to my kids. So that's yeah. another thing which I think speaking to the Gen X and baby boomers and even a few of you millennials, um, the, the I, hustle story is just. Crazy though, man. Like, I didn't even know that. Like, when, when you were in uni and you were already, you were, like, legally hustling. Oh, yeah, I was. I mean, I came out of, I, came out of, um, I did my, I joined the CA um, fraternity. And when I finally joined that um, and did, I, I qualified with, um, it was called FQE, Final Qualifying Center for Chartered Accountants. Mm. Um, and when I qualified for that, it, it meant that I was a chartered accountant. I did an ethics, an ethics paper. And then I had to wait two years to be mentored. So I wrote to the institute and said, I've got 35 staff. I turn over $7 million a year. I'm in breach of my ethics. I'm only allowed to turn over 10 grand a year. <laughs> uh, you know, because I was just off the charts in terms yeah. of um, size of the business. And they said, oh, oh how did you get so big? And I said, well, I'm, I'm just an unqualified accountant, but I've done my CA exams and now I'm qualified. Yeah. And they said, oh, we'll just stamp you right now. You're, you're, you're qualified. But, you know, it broke the mould, right? That, that was, I think it was 33. Oh, no, it must have been 30. Shit, it was early. Yeah. That's interesting. I want to you keep know, talking Matt- about the young investors because the, I have a lot of empathy for them. They, they will look at us and say, well, you guys – it was so easy for you guys. Mm. Um, interest rates are high now. Well, when I was investing, interest rates were 7 8%. That's where they are now. You needed a 20% deposit. Now you need 40 but they'll loosen those rules in a year or two, and that will flood liquidity and spike house prices. Mm-hmm. And if you are getting into your first, your first property, maybe it's your family home. Maybe you move into it, renovate it, revalue it, go see Blandon, gear up, Rent it out, go get the next one. Can you do that, Brendan? You can do that, can't you? Yeah, you definitely. It's actually one yeah. of our strategies on our YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long way from – I'm not buying my first time. Um, so, But, you know, you you young people, you need to get a second job and work hard like I did. I work 60 hours plus a week and work my ass off. Mm-hmm. And 
okay, get a second job. Um, ask for a, an increase in income from your employer. Do what if it you takes. can't service it, work more. Yeah, <laughs> and and you look at the you look at the Indian community. They migrate to New Zealand. Often don't have much at all. Um, they get a small business, dairy cleaning business, whatever it is. Next thing you know, they've got two dairies, two cleaning businesses. They're working twenty four hours a day. They're driving for Uber too. Before you know, mm-hmm. they've got their first home within three years. Then they've got three investment properties. In 10 years, they're far outperforming the local Kiwis. And what it is is work ethic Mm. and and determination. That's true. We've we've seen many of those clients come through. So Yeah. I I knock around that community a lot. Celeste Chand is a partner at GRA. He and I own a lot of property. And that is a community of hard graft. Those guys really work hard. I have a lot of respect for it. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to ask you because – you know, when we went to a property school, one thing that you always stress about was like, hey, the number, right? What's, what's the number? We, we reverse yeah. engineer it. What's and then number, I was man? like, I was curious. What's I asked Matt. Matt probably don't even remember this. I asked <laughs> him as like what his, what his number was and he uh, he you. shared it with me. And, I, you know, I'm going to leave it to him whether or not he wants to share here. But I can't remember. And then two the years later. Known. Sorry? It's always remember. Been, yeah, exactly. You can't remember it. But two years later, I was like, "Hey, check, checking back. You told me this number. Did you did you hit it?" And he's like, "Yep, I did it." So right. now, you know, this is probably another two years later now. So it's like, mm. what what's next for you? What what are you? What are your future plans? Um, you know, what's your aspiration now, Matt? Uh, oh, I gotta uh, say that know, number like, was like what, lots of people don't don't know who I am. I'm a chartered accountant, and I yeah. keep my day job. I'm still a director at GRA, but I tend to work more on my property these days. So Blandon's asking what's what's next for me. Um, I really enjoy what I do. I, I build houses at the moment. We're um, in the down market. We're building one house a month in Auckland. Slash and I in a JV. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm consenting 29 um, units in Glen Innes at the moment. Last year, I completed a subdivision of 81 um, sections in Darfield and Canterbury. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a bunch of houses down in Canterbury that I've been using, you know, earthquake-affected houses to buy distressed assets and fix them and rent them out. So all that stuff, we've been, we're buying a row of Plan Change 9 we're trading, developing and trading in Auckland. So I just enjoy it. And I get yeah. good partnerships with good people who number one criteria is ethics and are they trustworthy because you don't want to look over your shoulder. And, you know, I want to train my kids to do it. And I've got an 18-year-old son who's showing interest in this stuff. That's good. Uh, bring them in. It's a, it's a great thing to learn for life, um, the, the skills of being a property investor, developer, trader, well, you know, all, all these skills. It's all the same skill. Buy, add value, hold it or sell it. And then there's, you know, 50 different ways to add the value. Learn, learn the 50 ways. Do what's good for your household. And that's what I'm doing for mine. One bit of advice, young people and old people. When it comes to property investment, um, Brandon and I were talking about surviving the, the 10 years. Don't grow broke. Halfway through, you go broke because your cash flow is bad. Keep your day jobs. Because if you give away your day job to be a full-time investor, when the market goes down, the banks won't lend money to you and they'll, they'll even pull, pull the loans you've got off you mm. because you no longer qualify and meet their criteria. So why, do, why am I still a director in GRA? Why do I still have shareholding in GRA? Because it's my day job. It gives me cash flow. 
I don't work in it so much anymore because I've got such a bunch of people working in there. But the cash flow that comes off that makes me bankable. I, I'm still functioning as an investor in a down market because I don't give away my day job. And a very negative pattern I see is people turning 40 and they're at the peak of their intellect and career. They've got the most respect they've ever got, the most income they've ever had, but they're bored. They say, oh, I don't no longer want to be an engineer or quality surveyor or an um, architect or a builder. I want to go be a full-time property investor because the market's hot. And three years later, the market's cold. They're no longer respected. They've lost the mana they had in their professional community or business. They've lost their business, lost their job. Yep. The banks don't like them because they left their day job and they're no longer bankable. They become distressed. And the investors who are not distressed come in and grab their assets. They give away all the hard work they did and try and recover their career. Don't give away your, your day jobs. Keep your day jobs. Look at property as a side hustle. It's something you can do um, that actually will make a lot more money than your career does because it's non-taxable and with leverage, the growth is huge. Seminar. Yeah. Is that what you call a, a midlife crisis? No. It's called getting bored. <laughs> getting Everybody bored. gets bored at the peak of their career because even if you're really good at it, doctor, dentist, um, yeah. after doing it for a long time, doing the same thing, even when you're really good at it, uh, becomes boring. You know, you yeah, just do so many times. But here's the thing. Becoming a full-time property investor, because you really like renovating houses and picking colours and tiles and bringing something to life that's exciting, it's new. After you do it five times, that's boring too. Mm. So you're just swapping something that's highly paid all the time for something that's highly paid some of the time. So yeah. be careful. Keep the day job. Definitely. Like uh, I would say when it was an up market, developers were, you know, everyone was a developer and very happy. But um, yeah. yeah, during a down market, it's definitely very tough. And, you know, the, the only the best one will get through it. Yeah. Here's a nugget for developers and, uh, who build stuff. Um, you guys make the, the mistake of selling everything. Mm. Ten years later, the investors you sold to get the growth. You got some money up front got some cash flow, pay tax, agents fees, GST. You made some money, good on you. But who made more out of the asset, you or the investor? I'd suggest the investor out of each asset you sold would make more over 10 years. Mm. What if instead you take a 10-year view, you sell half and you keep half? So, so we call that hybrid investing. And if you sell half and you've got a, a one-quarter profit margin on the whole thing, well, then you've got 25% left of debt, mm. 50% geared, because you've, you've got rid of all of the debt on the half you sold. And it sort of works out that way. Um, but when you look at all the taxes, the GST and the agent's fees, your gearing comes right, your cash flow comes right if you sell half. So that means you're claiming GST on half, paying GST on half when you sell, and paying tax on half. So half the gains are taxable, half the gains are on capital account. You need some better tax structures to make that work better. But that's the sweet spot. Stop selling everything mm -hmm. and stop trying to keep everything. I meet guys that are like, oh, I'm going I'm to you know, make a fortune because I'm going to pay no tax and, and, um, and no agents and keep everything. That's the smart money. Those guys yeah. grow broke because they've yeah. got all the debt. They made 25%. They've got 75% debt. Mm. Less whatever 
equally they stuck in there, but they've got huge cash flow pressure when interest rates are, are peaking out. Mm. So you sell half, you don't have cash flow pressure, you don't have LVR pressure, you didn't pay too much tax and, and too many agents, it's, it's the sweet spot. Yeah, and don't just listen to this and go out and do it. Pay for advice because that structure is more complex than you think. Yeah, it is, yeah. And so, Matt, I think as a last thing, um, maybe Actually, we, we make more money out of people second guessing it and going to a kitchen table accountant who says, Oh, I know what to do. We have to yeah. fix it later. We make a lot more money out of that. So, um, yeah, the banner's dead right because if we have to fix the problem, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Take yeah, advice. Proactive, up. proactive, yeah. not reactive. And do it before you buy the asset, really. Yeah. So, maybe if you just tell us a little bit about GRA and how people can reach out to you, Matt. Uh, so, gra.co.nz that you can book a free meeting for new clients to talk tax and legal structures or talk property we've got a really good crew i used to do i used to have a mentoring team um geez mentoring's hard blendon you you know you take people into a deal here's the deal here's the numbers this is why it makes sense ah we're afraid we're afraid the deal gets away someone else gets it so i took my mentors and they now work for me full time yeah. And I trade all the deals they do and develop all the properties they get. And mm-hmm. so in the down market, they've been working for Celeste and I full time in our in our portfolios. So we yeah. don't we don't mentor anymore because our mentors are working for us. But you can still talk to them. We still have them there for the odd consult for clients that need that. We refer our mentoring out to, to affiliates these days, but you can yeah. still talk to those guys. So if you want tax and legal structures, we're really strong on that stuff. If you want help with your property strategies or specific issues with properties, we can help with that. If you want super chartered accountants that really understand GST and income tax surrounding property, we're all over that stuff. And don't think we're just property people. We also do general business accounting, but heaps of clients in business, ranging from doctors, dentists, to builders, to to manufacturers, you know, everybody really. But our common theme is our clients that make money want to learn about property and mm. we're property central. So gra.co.nz. Perfect. Thank you so much for your insights and expertise today, Matt. And for our listeners out there, again, if you guys haven't got it yet, check out the, the books, Rabbit right here. Property the 101. Property 101 and the yeah. Tax Structure 101. It's available on his uh, website yeah. and fantastic resources for anyone who's thinking about property investment or even if you're already doing it, there's a ton of case studies in there as well. And if you guys found value today in this podcast, all we asked was just one thing, and that is to share this episode with one other person that's going to benefit from it. Again, thank you, Matt. And uh, Landon, thanks so much for inviting me. Um, really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, we must have you on a, on a GRA podcast at some point. Yeah, now look forward to it. Thank you so much. And uh, you guys have a great day. Thanks for listening.